Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for our vision series, where we will be unpacking our four discipleship priorities of gathering the lost, growing in community, growing as disciples, and going on mission. These four priorities are how we understand God has called us to live as His disciples, and over the next two weeks, we will unpack how we believe God is calling and challenging us to outwork these priorities in 2023. We pray this message is a blessing. Would you please stand with me as we hear from God's Word together? This comes from the story that a guy named John uh, told of Jesus. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And another guy called Luke in the story, he tells about Jesus. He recounts Jesus saying, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Hey friends, how are you all doing? If we've not met before, my name's Alex. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at New Life Brisbane. And you chose a good day to be with us this afternoon. Today is week one of two for Vision Sunday. And our delight is just to give a window, a picture, give you a peep under the bonnet of our car that we call the vehicle of New Life Church and just give you a sense of what ticks our heart, what makes us move forward, what's the horizon to which we're oriented, what's the heartbeat that drives our blood. And so you chose a good afternoon to be with us, particularly if you're new and you're like, man, what's New Life Church about? My hope is in the next two weeks, both with what I say, but also the community you experience, that you'll be able to walk away and say, actually, I know exactly what they're on about. And I think I want to partner with them to get there. So I'm just so aware that my ability to even communicate that will just fall short this afternoon. It's hot, the fans, they move air, but it's not conditioned air. So it's just like someone is breathing on us. And so I wanna pray one more time, is that okay? And then we'll jump into the scriptures together. Father, thank you that you're here. And speaking of breath, Lord, just aware that you wanna breathe your spirit into our hearts this afternoon. And so we just say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome. Father, help me forget the words that will be unhelpful and call to mind the words that you want to deposit in the hearts of this family here. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Something I share every single time I speak on the topic of vision is the story of two tradesmen. They're both doing the same task and they're asked the same question. What are you doing? And the first guy says, I'm laying bricks. The second guy says, I'm building a home for God. If I was to ask you, what separates both people? You wouldn't be able to say the task that they're doing. You'd only be able to say that it's the vision that they have. And the thing about vision is it changes not what you do, but the reason behind why you do what you do. It takes the what, it takes the how, it takes all the big questions and submits them under the larger question of why. 
Simon Sinek, he's a leadership guru, he's written a number of best-selling books, and he says, why is the most powerful question you can ask, and one of the most catalyzing questions you can answer, whether you're an individual, a team, an organization, or dare I say, as the pastor here in this local place, a church. What's our why? Vision changes everything. A philosopher that I've grown fond of quoting is a 19th century philosopher, Henry David Thoreau. And he says, it's not what you look at that matters most, it's what you see. And as we step into Vision Week, Vision Two Weeks, I should say, the question I want to ask us is, when you look at this church, what do you see? I find it so easy to see a church where I'm like, oh man, I just wish they had aircon on. You know what I mean? Or you come along and you're like, oh, I hope the preaching is like, to time, you know? And if it's not to time, if, he, if the guy goes over, like it's, it's really informative. Um, or you think maybe, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to having a good sense of community and, and hopefully like, you know, someone knows my name as I walk into church this afternoon and wonderful concerns, meaningful to talk about, but not the vision that should inform the why behind the what. I'll give you another example. Last week, every week actually, at 3.15 p.m., we, we call it our rally. All the teams that make up the uh, sort of the volunteers for the afternoon on a Sunday, we gather together at 3.15 p.m. And so we've got our host team, we've got our worship team, we've got our kids team, our bubs team, and we're all together, and I ask this question to each of our team leaders. What's your heart for the afternoon? What's your vision? And so I usually go to Aaron, and he's got this like mini sermon that he preaches, which melts everyone's heart, and he's just like, look, we just want to sit in the presence of God this afternoon. I'm just like, yes, I won't preach, let's just do that. Then I go to our bubs team, and they're just like, look, we don't want to babysit, we want to, we want to make a safe space of discipleship for young children. Last week, we interviewed a guy named Jeremy. He's with us this afternoon. And I said, Jeremy, what's your heart for this afternoon? And he said, well, we all know we're in a spiritual war. And the battles we fight are not against flesh and blood, but principalities and power. And so when people come in this afternoon, I want to be very mindful of that war. Now, guess what Jeremy was serving on? The front door. <laughs> now, the what is the same every week. Welcome people. Give them a cup of tea. Make them feel like we've given some kind of hospitality to them as they enter. But what did Jeremy see? He saw something much bigger, much more beautiful, much better than what was just meeting the eye because it's not what we look at that matters, it's what we see. What's your vision? What do you see when you see church? Now, my insecurity in communicating this is I don't feel like a very charismatic guy. And the thing about these kinds of talks when they come around every February for most churches, particularly in our city center, is you've got some person, typically a guy, up the front communicating a vision that professional Christians will start to outwalk if you just give them enough money. Now, that's a big critique, and I'm a cynic at the best of times, but I don't feel that able, that persuasive, that charismatic in my ability to communicate those things, which is why I'm actually really glad that the way New Life does vision is empowering, democratic, and invitational for all the people of God, because what I'm communicating this afternoon is not our next announcement about where the church plant's going to be. It's not how we're going to partner with this mission organization overseas. It's actually just the lens through which to view all that we might do. And that's what vision is. It's an invitation to see afresh, see again, see differently. What do you see when you come to New Life Church? What is our vision? Our vision, as the video articulated so helpfully, is that in five years' time, not through professional Christians that are up the front, but by the whole empowered people of God, we might see renewal in Australia with and through the Uniting Church. That we would see a sweep of God 
not because we manufactured it, but because we postured ourselves to participate in what God was doing in the denomination that we call home. Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't it sound awesome? Doesn't that make you want to not just come to church, but see how you might partner with the very people of God here to see what God might do in and through your life? Now, we say it like this. Another helpful sort of catchphrase for us is more people, more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. And now I want to zoom in on the time that we've got for the next two weeks on that definition we have for thriving. Big picture, strategic pillars. Here's what's happening church-wide. How do we play our part? Four really simple things. We gather the lost, we glue in community, we grow as disciples, and we go on mission. These are the four things that we think about what it looks like to become a thriving local church, that we're missional, we're community-orientated, we want to grow as disciples in personal formation, and we want to go on mission, that we don't think it would be an accident for you to come in this church and find yourself propelled along this pathway of Jesus-likeness for the sake of the world, that that would be intentional to everything that we do. And so for week one, I want to zoom in on the sort of two parentheses of those four Gs. I want to gather the lost and go on mission, or in other words, mission and evangelism. So I feel like we've done in like five minutes, we've gone big picture, and I want to just zoom in right down into the micro dust and just articulate, man, what does it look like for the people of God in this place to partner with him to gather the lost and go on mission, evangelism and mission, declaring the gospel and demonstrating the kingdom of Jesus. So, John 20, open it up if you've got your Bible with you. Always a good practice in church, I must say. And we're going to go from verse 19. And here's the question I've got. Why are the disciples fearful? That's my question as we jump into this text right now. Verse 19 says this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Why are they fearful? I don't know if you remember the last time you were fearful. I got scared yesterday. I found a possum in the rafters on our roof. There was this like hand hanging down. I was scared. It made me jump. Fearful is something different from being scared. It's like this, in the depths of your gut, this desire to sort of fight or flight. Fearful, overcome, overbound, bound up by fear. The disciples were fearful. Why? And to answer that question, you kind of have to go back. I just saw my wife showing Dylan the photo. There's literally this claw hanging down from between, doesn't matter. Anyway, possums. You've got to love to hate them. And fearful something different. And the disciples felt it. My question is why? To answer that question, you kind of have to go back in the story a bit. See, the Jews had this hope in first century Israel, first century Palestine, the hope that one day there would be a king who'd come from within their midst, who'd be the agent through which God overthrew evil in the world. Now, for the Jews, evil was the Roman nation, the state of Rome, epitomized in the person of Caesar. And so they had this hope that one day this Messiah would come along and with a big sword, political power and might, overthrow the boot of Rome. And so the disciples find this guy named Jesus. And he comes announcing the kinds of things that expect this king to announce. He starts doing the kinds of things that we'd expect this king to do. And in doing these things, they say, you must be the guy. We're going to follow you. So they follow him. They learn from him. They apprentice under him until one day he says, actually, the way that I'm going to ascend my throne is not through, not through overthrowing Rome, but actually by being killed by Rome. And the coronation of the king that they apprentice after was not one where we overthrow, overthrew Rome by power and might, 
but where he subjected himself to the pain, the cruciform, and ultimately to the cross. And so here's the question they've got. Did we back the wrong horse? Maybe they're fearful because the guy they claimed to follow was killed by the Rome they thought he'd overthrow. I actually don't think that's it. Because in John chapter 20, he gets raised from the dead. Now, I don't have time to go into the evidence behind that claim, but if you're curious here and there's sort of a skeptical sort of strand in your brain and you want to talk through the evidence there is for the resurrection of Jesus, man, make yourself available to myself after the service or to one of our leaders, particularly host team. And we'd love to put resources in your hands or at least take your details so we can do that because there's a wealth of evidence there, not just from Christian sources, but non-Christian sources. But that's a side question. Put that on hold. Listen for the good in this moment. I don't think that's why they're fearful. They're not fearful because they expect to find themselves at the same fate that, that their king found themselves in. I think they're fearful because they know the game's back on. Why? Well, early chapter John 20, Jesus is raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene, a few others, find Jesus raised from the dead. They then go and report this fact to the disciples, and then it starts, John chapter 20, verse 19. All the disciples were together, talking. What are they talking about? Here's the question I think they might have been talking about. What does the mission look like now? that the king we thought was gone is actually raised to new human life, that there's this new era upon us, this new moment in God's history. They were scared, not because they thought they'd die at the hands of Rome like their follower, but because he'd now ushered in a new moment where they have to follow him through with his power and his spirit, his prompting. I'd be fearful too. Now, why do I go into all this? I go into all this because I don't think we resonate with the disciples. I don't think often we have the fear the disciples had. And I think sometimes in the modern Christian world, we don't have the fear the disciples had because we don't have the same mission that they had. That we find it so easy to orient our lives in a whole host of other priorities and trajectories and God standing right there, pierced hands and sides saying, actually, I'm raised from the dead. Join me in my mission to the world. Sometimes we don't share the same fear because we don't often share the same goal. That's a hard word, but follow me through to the end. I want to introduce you to a continuum. The continuum you'll see on the screen, it's a continuum put together by a guy named John Tyson. You might have heard him about him before from our lead minister. And he puts this continuum together to help us as Christians parse. Oh, darkness is meant to be on the far right. Formatting's not my friend. I'll work on it. But he puts this continuum together to parse the way in which we might find ourselves as we think through our witness to the world as Christians. And uh, he says, down one end of the spectrum is comfort, down the other end of the spectrum is darkness. Now, comfort is the place where you say, look, I like church, I like that I've got my friends at church, it's all fun, I've sort of, I've learned who my people are now, I know who to sit next to when I come to church, that really excites me. Um, I, I know that like every second time we go out for dinner, like it's a good option, whereas when we go to Grilled, I'm not such a big fan, you know. And then you think about your normal week and you're like, actually, I just... Like, work's really good for me right now. I'm really enjoying work. It feels meaningful, not too laboursome, but it's stimulating, you know, and you sort of add these all categories together. And, and John Tyson would simply say, look, that sounds like a comfortable Christian life. Comfortable Christian life. Evil? No, no, it's not evil, but comfortable. Down the other end of the spectrum is darkness, where you might find yourself living in such a way that people ask questions, in a sense, about your sanity. And so maybe you find yourself spending a bit of extra time with people that don't sort of dress the way you do. And, or maybe you find yourself giving generously and sacrificially to people that you don't even know if they're going to spend it wisely. You know what I mean? Or maybe you find yourself, I don't know, interacting with people that 
society would call the last and the least and the lost. And here's the question JT asks. Where did Jesus spend his time? Next slide. Most of Jesus' time was spent right there, between darkness and criticism. When people rebuked and rejected Jesus, they did so because he dined with tax collectors and sinners. People actually critiqued him in his life. They said he's a glutton and a drunkard, meaning he eats too much and he drinks too much. Meanwhile, we've got no evidence to suggest that he actually ever ate too much or drank too much. But why did people claim that? Because Jesus hung around with the most questionable of people. Why? It's the redemptive edge. It's where God postures himself to see where his life might meet the life of the world. Where do you find yourself? As we start out a new year, where do you find yourself? Something I've learned in my time, and this is something you kind of just have to try on for yourself, is that people who find themselves at the redemptive edge really like it, and people who don't, don't. What do I mean? I mean that something I've found to be true in my life is that evangelism and mission, being part of God's witness to the world, declaring and demonstrating the good news of Jesus for the sake of others, it's actually really addictive when you let it into your life. An example that comes to my mind is a few years ago, uh, when we were living in the UK, we did a university mission up to uh, the University of Leeds. This is before they were in the EPL, so like they weren't a big deal at the time. And we get there, and one of my colleagues is doing a talk on the historic reliability of the Bible. He speaks, gets down, I start chatting with this guy, he's a university student. And as we're chatting, he's asking these questions, and the kinds of questions he's asking are really fascinating. Questions like, hey, could this be true? Hey, I've never read the Bible. Would you, would you help me understand it? Now, this guy had sort of like a nominal Catholic background, which means he grew up in a church that called themselves Catholic, but he wouldn't be able to sort of tell you why that's meaningful. You know what I mean? And so I take him out to coffee. We spend two hours together. And in our two hours, we open up the Gospel of Luke, one of the biographies of the life of Jesus, and we look at the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15, the story of a good father who gives all of his wealth to his son. His son spends it, rebels from his father, realizes the error of his ways, comes trottling back to his father to apologize, and the father won't even accept an apology, just welcomes him with wide, open, warm embrace. And we just made the simple point that the father is God, we are the son. And all of us have rejected God, and he welcomes us back by grace through faith, celebrates, the blind now sees, the lost is found. And he said, I've never heard this before. This feels like acceptance. So we prayed together, bought him a journal, bought him a Bible, and tried to get him clued into community up in Leeds. When I look back at that moment, I think, there is nothing more I want to do with my life. Have you ever seen someone meet Jesus in real time before you? It'll completely change your life. This is why mission and evangelism, it's not a one-way street where we've got the truth and we just deliver it to people. It's actually a two-way encounter where we reveal and realize something fresh about the faith that we've received. Mission, evangelism, it's really exciting when you're part of it. But if you've not tried it, you know when you, there's something in your life that you really, really like and um, you like it so much that when someone says to you, oh, I'm not a big fan of that, you just can't believe it? You had that, those moments? What do you ask them? I ask them, have you really tried it? For example, someone comes to me and they say, Alex, I just don't like coffee. I'm like, look, mate, you've not tried. Single origin, Ethiopian yoga chef, 16 grams in, 320 grams out. You've not tried it. Fruity, full-bodied, 
kind of like a Shiraz, you're welcome. <laughs> or someone comes to me and they're like, look, I'm more of a West Coast fan than an East Coast. You'll know what I mean if you're a beer drinker in the room. They're like, I don't like East Coast IPAs. I'm, I'm more of a West Coast guy. And my response is, look, you've just not been to range. <laughs> Two people in the room understand that joke, that's fine. Someone comes along and they're like, look, Alex, I just don't love Lord of the Rings. I'm like, hey, mate, I'm just going to need to call the elders and pray for deliverance for you because that's wrong. You've probably not tried Lord of the Rings. That there's a sense in you that if you've truly experienced the good of something, it's really hard for you to accept that someone else doesn't love it too. And I would just say, actually, all of us as followers of Jesus, apprenticed after his way, are invited to try mission, try evangelism, be part of his hands, his feet, his mouthpiece in the world. This is God's invitation. So my question for this first point is this. Are you on mission? This year, are you on mission? Are you posturing yourselves on mission, the redemptive edge, perhaps getting so uncomfortable with your life that people ask questions, but really they're the hypocrites looking on at you being part of Jesus's hands and feet in the world. Leslie Newbigin says it like this, I think that the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus on the frontier of the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. How good's that? So what should our mission look like? Verse 21 says this, Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. I'm sending you. The beautiful part in the midst of that is he says, as the Father has sent me. Now you look into the text and other ways to translate as is simply like, or in the same way that the Father has sent me. In other words, look, take note. So too am I sending you. And the question I was meditating on this week is like, how did God send Jesus. Well, it sounds like a no-brainer, but actually so often we miss that question in the modern church. We've got all these theories about what the most faithful way to be the hands and feet of Jesus are. I'm just like, actually, Jesus gave us a pretty concrete picture. So let me just walk through some of the ways that Jesus was sent by the Father. John chapter 1, verse 14, the message translation says it like this, he took on flesh and moved into our neighborhood. What's the first thing God in sending the Son does on mission? He moves into the neighborhood. Two, chapter two, he confronts religious hypocrisy. Chapter four, verses one to 26, the story of him meeting the woman at the well, he meets with sinners. Five, he restores the lame. Six, he feeds the hungry. Seven, he heals the blind. Eight, he raises the dead. Nine, he teaches with authority. And 10, he goes to the cross for the sake of the world. And 11, he's raised on behalf of all humanity. This is Jesus's mission to the world. Now, the reason I bring this up is because there's this big debate happening, and it's been happening for a while in the church, and the debate is this, that there's two ends of the spectrum on which you can find yourself when you think through what it means to do mission in the world. I'm not talking too fast, am I? I probably am. Well, welcome to new life. This is also part of what we do. On one end of the spectrum, you've got people who want to magnify what they call word, that in other words, all we need to do to be part of God's mission in the world is just tell people about God, tell them about sin, tell them about repentance, tell them about Jesus, tell them about love. We just need to tell them things. And if the people that are meant to be chosen by God, they will indeed repent and believe. That's what some people say. It's all about word. Other end of the spectrum, people think that it's only all about deed. We've got to demonstrate the kingdom of God, not declare the kingdom of God. We need to do good works, not save souls. And we need to invest in this earthly life. 
But you watch the story that I just unpacked from the life of Jesus, and is it not the case that both of them are present? That it's word and deed, demonstration and declaration, saving souls and investing into this earth, good works, those kinds of things. In other words, to quote from Luke, not Luke. You're welcome. I forgot I put that in there. Why not both? Why not both? Christopher Wright, maybe a more scholarly interpretation of the old El Paso ad, an Old Testament scholar, he puts it like this. He says, bluntly, we need a holistic gospel because the world is in a holistic mess. And by God's incredible grace, we have a gospel big enough to redeem all that sin and evil has touched. Someone else said it like this. There's five gospels written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And what you do with your deeds, what you declare with your mouth, might be the only gospel that your friends, your family, and your co-walkers ever read. Your life really matters. Your life's important. What you do and what you say could all be caught up, all be strung into, woven into the fabric of God's mission in this world. The image that I've got for this is, wait for it, this is going to blow your minds, bees. Bees, you heard me rightly, B-E-E-S, honeybees. Apparently European bees are honeybees. Australian bees don't bite you as much, some fun facts. Other fun facts about bees, without bees, we would lose access to over 90 varieties of food. Don't know if you know that. One in three mouthfuls of food around the world is dedicated or is the result of pollinators, or in other words, bees. That's how important bees are. Einstein was famously quoted as saying years ago that humanity would die in three years if bees became extinct. So why bees? Well, in short, bees are so integral to the life of the ecosystem. And where bees go, life flourishes. Al Gordon is the pastor of an Anglican church in East London. It's called Saint Church, and their vision is to see hope brought to the people of East London. And years ago, their church started like a, a beehive, and they put it on the rooftop of their vestry and cultivated bees. And a few years later, or maybe six months, I don't know, a year later, let's say a year later, their neighbor comes to them. Now, their neighbor is an atheist. The, Al tells the story. Atheistic neighbor, no framework for faith, no background in Christianity. And his neighbor comes to him and says, Al, thank you so much for being here, and thank you so much for the bees. Ever since you've been here with bees, my garden is flourishing. I've got twice as many flowers, and there's so much life teeming in the ecosystem. Imagine if Christians had that impact on the world. Imagine if everywhere we went, people's testimony was, oh, there's so much life because of their presence. Imagine if here in the city of God, actually not just the city, because this is sort of like our hive, you know, Sundays are like our hive where we get together, we spend time, we, we enjoy good company and good community, but actually the pockets that we find ourselves in around the city, imagine if all of our neighborhoods could actually say, because of your presence in our midst, there is life here. There's more life here. Now, some of us are thinking, well, is that the gospel? Actually, yes, the gospel is the announcement that Jesus is king and that he's got life eternal and life to the full for anyone and everyone who believes. Could you imagine if the witness and the presence of Christians brought the testimony that there is life 
My garden is twice as fruitful, he said to Al. What would it look like if people in our workplaces, communities, friends and family said, yeah, my life is enriched because of you? Last question, when are we? I was reading a book in the holidays by a guy named James Smith, and it's called How to Inhabit Time. And he articulates in this book that there's a host of good questions we can ask about life, but one of the really important ones as Christians is to ask the question, when are we? Now, when he's asking that question, he's not asking it from the standpoint of, like, check the time, what's the time? He's asking it more from the lens of, hey, what has God done? What will he do? And in this moment, what is he doing? Because when you answer that question, you realize that actually there's a part that you get to play. And there's a particular time on the God clock. And what's that time? Matthew 9, verse 37 to 38 says this, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When you look at sport, trust me, this illustration's tied in. Just follow me here. There's a whole host of things you need to know in order to play football. But two really important things is you need to know the plays you're going to make and you need to be able to read the clock. Because you can have a whole buffet menu item of plays in your handbook. But unless you know the time on the clock, you won't know which one to play. So imagine if I say to you, early on in the game of football, and we're thinking soccer here because I'm a real fan, Early on in the game of football, hey, keep possession. That makes sense at that time in the game. But you know what doesn't make sense? Is when you're one goal down, it's the end of the game, you don't play possession. You play full frontal, send your, send your keeper up into the other defender's box, and you play attack. You go for it. Why? Sure, you know the players, but you've read the clock. It changes the way you engage in the moment. And here's the point Jesus is making in Matthew 9. There is a harvest there are people who don't know God. There are people who have no idea of the Christian framework, no sense of the person of Jesus. And man, they're hungry. The census data came out just last year. And on the data, it said things like that uh, Christianity has plateaued, which doesn't sound super encouraging, but we've been declining in years gone by, so we'll take the win where we can. Christianity's plateaued. Uh, the increase of those who tick non-identified on the census, it's going up. Uh, and, and then, yeah, that's actually basically the two points I wanted to make. But what does this mean? It means really that nominal Christian is, Christianity is out, so people no longer tick Christian on the census because their parents did. People are just being honest, right? They're like, okay, I don't think I'm a Christian, therefore I tick non-Christian on the census. Um, but what does this mean for Christianity? I think it means actually there's a window of openness for us as a church because people are hungry and the kinds of questions that they're open to entertaining is maybe there is more to life than this. Maybe there is a God, and maybe he wants a relationship with me. We've got to know the play. We've got to read the clock. And so here's the question. Will you posture yourself for mission in this hour? Because today is the day. Now is the time. The hour is here. I wanted to talk through specifically what it might look like to think through evangelism and mission. And I think there's two there's two equal and opposite unhelpful things. And as I articulate these things, I'd love to invite the band up behind me. Because what we've said so far is this. One, we need to have the same vision of mission the disciples had. And when we do, we'll feel fear, but also courage all at the same time. Two, 
We need to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus. What we do and what we say, it all matters. And three, the time is now. Life is short. The hour has come. What would it look like to partner with God where he's at here in this moment? But what does it look like? There's two ends of the spectrum that I think are really unhelpful. One is to say that the most spiritual thing I can do for mission is to sort of chart my own course and therefore the most faithful missional things I can do are outside of the church that I call home. The other end of the spectrum is to say, actually, it's only really truly missional if it's a program put on by the church. And I would just say, actually, some of the best stories I hear come out of people within our church that sort of do both. I'll give you an example. Just today, there's some photos on the screen behind me, sort of two slides, there we go. Just today, Lucy, Christine, and a whole host of team were in the high-rise behind me preparing meals to go out tonight to the homeless on the streets. Now, in weeks gone by, there have been no sort of like messages attached to those like boxes of food. But just recently, the teams thought about putting together like a little Bible verse, sort of adding word to their deed. Beautiful, really beautiful. But it's our City Meals program led by Lucy and Christine. And it's just the way by which we seek to love those on our doorstep that are so easily just to ignore as we make our way into the city centre. In terms two and three this year, we've got something that we're running called Alpha. Now, the person in our church, Jono and Maylee Farrell, who lead Alpha, which is just a vehicle through which people get to hear the story of Jesus for the first time, really. Jono would call himself, he, he, like, he likes this language, he calls himself an alpha-holic, which in other words means that like, he would just run alphas till the cows come home. He froths it, absolutely like, lives and breathes alpha. But I asked Jono, I was like, what if something better than alpha came along? He's like, oh, ditch alpha then. I don't care about alpha. I care about people meeting Jesus. Alpha's just a vehicle. And it's just this beautiful, tender heart towards the idea that we might gather the lost in our church, see new life be wrought in our midst. And whatever vehicle we use, really, it doesn't matter. And so the invitation is, man, maybe you want to try Alpha this year. But then there's people on this end of the spectrum, you know, um, there's a couple that live around the corner from us in Rochdale, Jess and Dan Craig. I don't know if they're here right now, but this is for them. They, um, we went over to their place for dinner probably like six months ago, probably a year ago, if I'm honest, let's be, yeah. Um, timeline's not helpful. And they'd had their floors redone. Uh, they got hardwood timber floors. And we're chatting with them. Oh, these look really nice. And she's like, want to know a better story? And I was like, yeah, tell us. And she said, oh, well, the guy who came and did our floors, we just started chatting. And Jess works from home a lot of the time. We just started chatting, made him a cup of tea. And, and he has a lot of questions about faith, actually. He found out I was a Christian. I was like, oh, awesome. I was expecting it to end there. You know, great story, Jess. Good on you for being a decent human to the guy who was your tradesman. But she said, so I was praying about it, and I felt God lead me to go to Kurong, a Christian bookstore, and buy him a book. So she goes, buys the book, he comes back, she gives him the book, and he wept. He'd never had that kind of kindness shown him before. Now, the book probably wasn't like a, a, a punch puller. It was probably like, hey, meet Jesus, he's real. Come into a relationship with God. But I remember hearing that story and going like, man, you don't need a program to be on mission for Jesus. You're just doing it. Or her sister, Kristen. Like, can we give a hand to Caroline and, and Hagen Haynes for a moment? Just Not Haynes, sorry, Birchie. Just because I look at these guys, I'm like, goodness me. So Kristen, her and her husband, they move into Mount Gravatt. And does anyone know the cookie story? I'm going to butcher it. A few people know the cookie story. 
but like they move in and they're just like, we want to give cookies to everyone in our orbit on the street. And so they bake cookies, package them up, they go to give them to people, but there's a couple across the road that aren't home every time they try and do it. And so she's there day in, day out, knocking on the front door. And she tells the story, she's like, I probably look like a madman. She just wants to be kind to her neighbours. Now, isn't that the mission of God? Surely the answer is yes, because that's the kind of life which provokes questions to which Jesus is the answer. So what does this mean for you this year? We want to gather the lost and we want to go on mission. You might have gifts. You might have a heartbeat. You might have a community where it's really easy for you to think, actually, I'm just going to do A, B, C, but I don't really want to involve myself in what the church is doing because I've got my things. I would just encourage you, actually, maybe it could be really helpful for you to consider doing Alpha. My hope would be, actually, that every single person in this church doesn't do Alpha, but brings a non-Christian friend to Alpha so they can experience the hospitality and the welcome, not of the program, but of the people who use it as a vehicle. But maybe you're on this end of the spectrum, just like, look, I could not even think about what it looks like for me to be part of God's mission in my workplace or family. And I would just, I'll just do what the church is doing, you know what I mean? I'll make meals or I'll jump in on Alpha. And I'll just say, actually, here's what it could look like for you if you're on that end of the spectrum. Jackie Pullinger, in her book, Chasing the Dragon, she um, was part of reaching out to the homeless in Hong Kong. And she says, actually, if the Holy Spirit's on us, all we need to do every day we wake up is just say, God, Holy Spirit, how can I be a witness for you today? Who do you need me to love on today? And here's the thought. Could you imagine if every single person in this room were to do that from Monday through to Sunday? this coming week. Imagine the stories we tell next week. You go to work, Holy Spirit, what can I do today to be a light for you? Who needs loving today? How can I go the extra mile today? If every single one of us did that, could you imagine the fruit, the stories we might tell? What are we doing? We're partnering with God to gather the lost and go on mission. I've got one more verse to read for us, but in the meantime, can I invite you to stand? Verse 22. Thank you so much for being here for Vision Sunday. I hope you've got a sense of our heartbeat and we'll get the second beat next week. But verse 22, and I think it could be prophetic for us because there's people in here who right now, you hear the stories of your Christians and your Jesses and you think, actually, I wanna see fruit in my life missionally this year. Like maybe you're like me a few years ago and you've actually never seen someone meet Jesus in front of you. I'd love you to have that experience this year. It's the most life-giving, electrifying thing for someone to literally be brought from death to life right in front of your face. It's wild. It's exhilarating. Maybe you want to have that experience this year. Not for your own satisfaction, but for the sake of God's mission going forward and you being a key partner in that mission. What do you need? Verse 22 says this. I'll read from verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I wonder if you might close your eyes. Friends, if we're gonna go where God's going, we actually need to partner with him. We need to rely on Him. And there's people in the room who, as I've spoken and cast such a vision for seeing God move in front of us because of our participation, not in spite of it. You're like, actually, I wanna be part of that. 
You want to see people meet Jesus this year because of what you've done in partnership with God. And if that's you, I want to pray that you might receive the Holy Spirit right now, afresh. And see, if, if you'd like that to happen, I just invite you to raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And in raising your hand, you're saying, God, I, want, I just want to be used by you. <laughs> That's all you're saying. And so maybe you want that to be yourself. So I just leave the space open. Thank you. If anyone else would like to thank you up on the, in the nosebleed section, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can you keep your hands raised nice and high? And can I invite those of us, brothers and sisters around those that have their hands raised, just to peep your eyes open and just lay a hand on those that have their hands raised. Keep them nice and high. And so if you're near them, you might need to move out of your pew. You might need to gather around them. It'd be wonderful if we've got more than two people gathered around particular individuals. And just lay your hand on their shoulder. And just under your own breath, maybe out loud, just begin to pray for them. The worship's gonna start momentarily, but just begin to pray for them. Pray that God might fill them. Pray that the Spirit of God might come upon them. And pray for fruit in their lives this year. Pray that they might be faithful with the gospel of Jesus, declaring it and demonstrating it. We just ask, Lord, come Holy Spirit. Jesus, you've called us your hands and your feet. Help us be them. You've made us your mouthpiece, Lord, and so help us be that. Father, I pray you would fill us as your people. Let us not settle for comfort. Push us towards the redemptive edge, Lord, in our workplaces, in our neighbourhoods, in our communities, in our families, with our friendship groups. We want to see your kingdom, Lord. Father, I pray that we would have people in this room whose neighbours are with us at the end of this year. Father, I pray that we'd have people in this room whose colleagues are with us at the end of this year. Father, I pray that there'd be people in this room whose family members are with us at the end of this year. Not because of what we've done, but because of what you, by your Spirit, keep on doing. And so come, Holy Spirit. Jesus' name. And friends, just with the last moment that we've got together, I want to make an invitation. On the pews in front of you, you'll see a card. And on that card, there's an opportunity just for you to, with the pen there, articulate the three people you want to pray might meet Jesus this year. This is something I do every year, and it's one of the most intentional ways I've got, by God's grace, these names and people coming across my imagination that I might pray for them, meet with them, and just be prompted to bless them in my life. And so I'd really appreciate, in fact, would invite you, if you want to take one of these cards and a pen, and before the end of our time today, maybe in worship in the next five minutes, just write names of people you would love to meet Jesus. And just commit to praying for them for the year. But in the meantime, friends, we're going to worship. We're going to step into all is for your glory. Because that's what we're talking about when we talk about vision. Not new life, 
not me, not any of the leaders, actually the glory of God coming in this city. His glory, our good, and the blessing of the world. Let's sing, friends. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can contact us at church.nu or through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.